Hello everyone, and welcome to the File Room Podcast, a podcast about the X-Files. That is also a desperate attempt to reconnect a friendship across the Atlantic. I'm Edwin Davis. And I'm Michaela Livingston-Banks. If you're new to the X-Files or watching it for the tenth time, watch along with us while we explore the dark corners of the American psyche. Via a TV show from the 90s. Hi, Michaela. How have things been going for you this week? Uh, really good. I'd say this week has felt quite long, but in a good way, because a bunch of stuff has happened. Um, mm. So I saw some friends who I haven't seen in what turns out to be a long time. <laughs> um, they mm-hmm. were they're back in the country for a bit, so went over to Cambridge, saw them, had lunch, apparently in the spot where Watson and Crick announced they'd uh, discovered the structure of DNA get a bit of history um but that was on monday and that felt like a really long time ago um and since then yeah all sorts but yeah and last night had a belated burns night which was fun um someone brought iron brew flavored beer which was surprisingly nice because it just tasted like iron brew and iron brew is lovely Mm -hmm. for anyone who hasn't had it um and oh yeah i went to see brian cox in conversation um the actor not the physicist um and x-file link there uh he was he was telling lots of anecdotes um you know rather than being drawn into intellectual discussion which i enjoyed a lot his he spins a good Mm. yarn but one of the stories he was telling was about how when he was coming up um growing up in dundee and he'd got uh, a job doing like odd work at a theater um before he'd like he wanted to be an actor but obviously he didn't go to drama school or anything at that point anyway a director was around and um took him along to uh voice classes and things which obviously he'd never really known was a thing and uh who mm. do you think this director was well i know because you told me already but so i, I, I i'll ask who was it <laughs> well edwin it was none other than william b davis the cigarette smoking man um wow. so there you go that's cool random x-file link on a random evening out listening to a random actor talking about his life that's cool i love brian cox He's always, he's always good, like, and it's nice that the last couple of years he's got a real kind of, like, he's become, like, an icon for a new generation because of succession. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, and he's, like, honestly, his stories were just a lot of fun. And I I wouldn't say I'm, like, a massive fan of him in general so much because, yeah, I don't really know his work super intimately or anything like that, but... Um, I love people talking about like their sort of creative process or or how they mm. feel about the creative process. Like whenever the Oscars are coming up, I think is it the Hollywood Reporter or or something like that on YouTube. There's always these like roundtable discussions between like actors yeah. and directors and things like that. And I just I can sit and watch that for an hour quite happily. Just just people talking about. Their creative pro I don't know I don't know why. I think it demystifies it, but it's also really fascinating, like the way that different people approach it. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well, because they always get an interesting um selection of people each time. Because there'll mm. always be obviously the people who are the, the big contenders yeah. that year, but there'll always be people who particularly before the nominations are announced, who are like bubbling under. Like mm. a few years ago, there was a movie called Red Rocket, which people thought was going to do really well at the Oscars, but then I don't think got nominated for anything. But the lead actor was a guy called Simon Rex, who um, was in one of those roundtables. And it was really interesting because he was like, he's just like a guy who's been an actor for a really long time and finally got a role that seemed to connect with a lot of critics and audiences and things like that Mm. and it was really cool seeing him talk about his experiences which were like wildly different to like the people he was talking with who were all much more experienced and like that's always something i like to see people whose career paths have kind of like taken they've all reached the same point but often they've gone on wildly different paths to reach that point it's a little microcosm of humanity um yeah yeah anyway how was your week yeah, my week was pretty good. I went into the office for the first time in about four months. Um, I work from home generally, but I try to go in 
every so often to kind of like see people mm. and you know if we have any events on and I it, it was nice but it always every time I go there it always kind of like throws up the mixed emotions I have about going into the office having worked from home for like four years mm. at this point where on the one hand I'm like wow it was really fun it was really nice to see people but I was also like going in for like an atypical thing where I wasn't doing my regular job yeah and part of me wonders, like, oh, if I were to go into the office every day, would I just be, like, going to a biz... To, would I just be, like, driving 20 minutes to go to a building to have a bunch of Zoom calls yeah. versus, like, doing Zoom calls at home? Yeah. Um, which was, like, what a lot of my day consists of. And this one, it kind of felt really pronounced there. Because, like, I was getting to do a fun thing, but it was a fun thing that very rarely happens mm-hmm. versus, like what would be like a normal day yeah yeah um but like i say it was it was fun it was really nice seeing people in person as opposed to on a zoom call um but yeah like i i I, every time i go in i keep waiting for that like magic moment that people like some people at work talk about it's like oh you know you have to be in because you know there's such an energy and like you know like you get this such a different thing when you're in the same place with people and creativity like flows more freely and like every time I go there like I never get that yeah (laughs) It's it's always just kind of like this is nice it's nice to see people and hang out but like I don't feel like you know, my, the synapses aren't firing yeah. in, a, in a different way. I, th- I think it depends on the job you have. I think I find it the mm. same. Like sometimes certain workshops, gatherings, whatever, like it has that kind of vibe to it. Um, yeah. Usually the social stuff, but that, that doesn't, obviously that doesn't happen very often really. But yeah, otherwise I'm quite happy like talking to people, um, you know, on on video calls and things like that. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think I, I think it really just depends on your role. Also, like there are the bosses who who are making their whole teams come in, but like for me, I go into the office like maybe once or twice a week, and I very rarely see that many other people. So it kind mm. of I I do it for a change of scenery, really, more than anything else. Yeah, that the the ritual of like going in, driving into the car park, and like flashing my badge and everything and then you know mm-hmm. going through and like seeing people that that it you know it is does make for a change of pace mm. at the very least so this week we're going to be talking about the x-files episode ice yeah which not to kind of like prejudge it or to kind of tip my hand too much uh is an episode of the x-files i like <laughs> uh, you did call it a certified banger last week so i did <laughs> no <yes>. spoil <laughs> so, no surprise uh, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, Michaela, why don't you uh, give us a quick synopsis of what happens in ICE? Yeah, all right. So, Mulder and Scully are called in to investigate when a strange and concerning video is received from an isolated research base up in the Alaskan Arctic. Um, and then there's been nothing but radio science from the scientists based there, so something is up. Um, so, Mulder and Scully team up with a crew uh, consisting of a doctor, a geoscientist, and a toxicologist, which sounds like it's the start of probably quite a boring joke. Um, but upon <laughs> arriving, they find it's that. One for the Dons. Huh? It's one for the Oxford Dons. Yes. <laughs> They'd love it. Um, but yeah, <laughs> uh, upon arriving at this base, they find that no one else is alive except for an aggressive dog um, that mm. they find has been infected with a strange parasitic worm. Um, paranoia bounds about what's going on. People are suspicious of each other. Who's infected? Who's not infected? Um, and unfortunately, they find themselves out of contact, basically, with the rest of civilization, having to fend for themselves. Um, first bear, the pilot, goes down. Um, and unfortunately, when trying to remove said worm from him, it kills him. Uh, and then they find Murphy, the geoscientist, has been murdered. So fingers are pointed. Uh, drama, drama, drama. Um, everyone's suspicion of suspicious of everyone else, and and ultimately it's Mulder who they they sort of lock away um, initially, only to find that it's the the toxicologist uh, De Silva who is infected. Um, but thankfully, through delightfully serendipitous science, which is the best kind of science, is how 
pretty much all good science discoveries have been made. Um, they discover how to kill the parasite and manage to um, treat uh, De Silva before they accidentally infect Mulder. So yeah, the episode ends with the survivors being airlifted out. Um, but yeah, the truth will not be out here because uh, after leaving, the, the base is torched. So they'll never really know the truth of where the worm came from, really. So we know you like it, Edge. Would you like to mm-hmm. uh, say a bit about about what you like the most about it? I think one of the main reasons that I like it is that the movie The Thing is one of my favorite movies. And this episode is not a like remake of that or any way. Mm. And in fact, I think there are some crucial differences which make it its own thing. But it obviously draws heavily on that and also on the John W. Campbell short story Who Goes There Mm. that was the inspiration for the thing where, you know, you have a bunch of people who are in an isolated, um, snowbound location. There's paranoia over whether or not some people are infected, which leads to tension uh, between them. There's an infected dog. Mm -hmm. There's obviously a lot of nods. Also, in reading upon this, uh, I thought it was interesting that uh, Graham Murray, who was the production designer for The X-Files, also worked on the thing. Yeah. So he obviously knew what he was doing. He knew how to kind of recreate that atmosphere. Yeah. But I think it's just such a wonderfully tense um, episode of television that creates fairly plausible drama and a sense of paranoia yeah. between the people. Like, it could very easily have felt false to have Mulder and Scully turn on each other, mm. but you do get the sense because of the nature of this worm, which they theorize doesn't like possess people or take over them. It just makes them like hyper aggressive and everyone is very stressed because they're trapped in the middle of nowhere and they can't leave. And also the heating's broken. So they're absolutely boiling Mm -hmm. despite the fact they're in Alaska. (laughs) And so everyone is like believably stressed and the paranoia feels natural to the situation and that all feeds into the drama. I think it's a really good pressure cooker of an episode where every character feels, even though obviously like most of the characters are people we've never met before yeah. and are only briefly sketched out, they all feel real. Yeah. They all have compelling motivations for why they would suspect each other. The way that people like partner off at certain points uh, against each other mm-hmm. makes sense. And I just think that everything that it tries to do it succeeds at swimmingly totally agree i think um when we were talking last week about ghost in the machine and and like it not mainly feeling like it was in too many different places this being the opposite Mm. it was in basically one place um but the effect of that was as you said to make it feel really claustrophobic you know created a lot of kind of isolation and tension from that and mm. everything just really worked the characters all felt like consistent um i you know i don't know why it was important that murphy have this thing about wanting to listen to recordings of football <laughs> matches sorry my team scored hmm. there's no football on wednesday i was retired in 87 didn't he no, this is just some of my all-time favorite plays on tape. But it was a thing, and it gave him, like, mm. you know, when, when he was found murdered, you're like, oh, <laughs> you, like, actually care a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's, he's like, genuinely very likable, yeah. uh, funny character, and he he has, like, kind of, like, a sweetness to him. Also, he sides with Mulder and Scully early on, so obviously you kind of get the, see- the sense that um he just wants to try and do what's right yeah and so when he dies it really does feel like the most innocent person died Uh, thankfully Um, not the dog though i always think you have to go on to does the dog die.com and check before (laughs) (laughs) um yeah the 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 dog does a great job would have been sad if the dog died Mm. oh yeah absolutely um the other things that i really like about it are um i like the fact that this is an episode where Scully is essentially surrounded by a lot of other Scullies yeah. because all the other the other scientists are doubting her conclusions about the nature of the worm. So I think that's like a really fun dynamic. She has to become 
the person who is simultaneously making quite quite bold claims about the nature of the situation that they're in, but also she has to be the clear-headed person who is trying to keep everyone calm and figure out what's going on. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic that uh, Gillian Anderson plays extremely well. Yeah. I think it's a really great showcase for her. Yeah. So really, they're all Scullies, but maybe she's Mulder, if she's like making the mm-hmm. bold claims. <laughs> Yeah, once once Mulder's locked away in the in the freezer or whatever. Yeah, or or the room that he decided to sit mm-hmm. in the dark, even though there was a light bulb. <laughs> yeah, where he has like light, where they lock him away when they suspect him. Where he says, "In here, I'll be safer than you," which yeah. also is like quite a good line. Um, it that gave me proper, you know, like creepy kids in a horror movie. Like the way mm. he said it, I was like, "It that has given me creepy kid in a horror movie vibes." In here, I'll be safer than you. Yeah. And I, I think as well, Dukovny has to ride like quite a fine line in this one as well, because you have to kind of plausibly believe that he could be infected. Yeah. And uh, so you have to kind of like go against the audience sympathies where obviously he's you know one of the two main characters. Obviously, we're going to side with him. Mm-hmm. And he, but he, not making it feel false. Yeah. And... I think the show very smartly plays on the fact that, oh yeah, Mulder's paranoid all the time. Exactly. He is inherently a distrustful person. So obviously if you put him in this situation, as much as he might want to try and be reasonable about it, he's probably going to be the guy who immediately suspects everyone and actually possibly make the situation worse, as happens like at the beginning with Bear, where... They want to check him out because they think he's been infected, and the first thing Mulder does is pull a gun, <laughs> and it's like this isn't this isn't great um, de-escalation no, for the situation. No, um, so I did like that it was Scully that had to uh, pounce on Bear after Mulder gets it over the head with a poop jar, or what was mm-hmm. gonna become a poop jar. It wasn't actually a poop jar at that point. Um, yeah. But yeah, I did think it was quite fun, that whole thing of like trying to figure out um, who was infected. Obviously, I knew, I knew, um, you know, having seen this yeah. episode before, but like, like really watching it with an eye to like, what, what is it that they did to try and like, um, take your attention on to other characters? Because like, they so obviously wanted you to maybe think it was Mulder, because he was, he was mm. being quite um angry and aggressive um yeah about it even though he is paranoid but like that even so it seemed like quite a lot um but i yeah i liked hodge the medical doctor guy in the sense that Mm. he was also seemingly quite paranoid about like what was going on and trusting governments and things there's a couple things he said throughout so in that sense, him and Mulder were were kind of one and the same, and it was a little bit like, um, you know, having magnets, yeah, repelling each other. So that kind of dynamic between them and the fact that it was like, oh, we clearly should be thinking that Hodge is the one because he's so quick to like try and make sure that the attention is on Mulder and everything like that. And then, whoa, mm, out of nowhere, yeah. it's De Silva, um. And when I watched it through the second time around this time, um, I was like trying to like watch what was going on around De Silva of like, how did they try and like, so, like, did they put any kind of breadcrumbs? Because obviously it's meant to make you aggressive and she wasn't particularly aggressive or anything. And maybe that's because she's a woman. Maybe it affects women differently. Who knows? Mm. Um, except for the temperature thing. Um, but then Hodge is like, oh no, it's fine. It's just the heating's broken. But that was like maybe yeah. the only clue that came. The whole crew, the the, the whole ensemble of the, the cast there, just kind of, they all just worked really well, like bouncing off each other and each other's personalities and everything like that to kind of build up that story of the mystery. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And And the actors they got for this episode also are really good in the kind of like actors who were going to be very very famous yeah. later in life game felicity huffman even i know her <laughs> yes plays the silver uh, and she's very good yeah. and this was very early on in her career i think the only thing of note she had done at this point was the movie reversal of fortune 
which had been like a commercial hit and uh, it got a bunch of Oscar nominations uh, a few years before and is the source of the thing in The Lion King where Scar, where Simba says to Scar, you're weird. He goes, you have no idea, ah. which is a, a line that uh, Jeremy Irons also says in Reverse of the Fortune that they, ah. they put into the Lion King as a as a joke for the for the parents, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, so she like she's obviously early on in her career, many years before Desperate Housewife made her a big star. But um, yeah, she's she's really great in this. I think the the character is kind of deliberately underwritten because you're meant to not mm. really notice her. Mm-hmm. Um, like she is the one you want to be. You, if the the episode is doing its job right, she's the one you least suspect. Yeah, um, and I think it does a good job of that. Certainly. The first time I ever watched this episode, I didn't suspect that it was her. So obviously the misdirects of it were like very well done. Yeah. And even this time, you know, it had been so long since I had last seen it. I kind of think, I think it's her. But as the episode progressed, I was thinking, oh, maybe I've misremembered. Maybe, maybe it was Hodge the whole time. Yeah. So I think it's, she's very good. And then Xander Berkeley as Hodge um is is very good good he was like he's like you know one of those character actors who's in a million things mm. before this um he'd been in terminator 2 where he plays john connor's dad who gets a big knife through his face um been in a few good men candy man a few like big movies mm. so he's like one of those people who just whenever he shows up it's like oh he's going to do a good job he's going to be like a real dependable presence and this is a real good showcase for him um and then uh steve heitner who plays um murphy uh, was probably the one who was on the cusp of stardom more than any of the others at the time because he was soon going to be playing the character of Kenny Banya on Seinfeld, oh. who is uh, one of the most disliked characters in a fun way <laughs> on that show because he's like a stand-up that um, idolises Jerry Seinfeld's character and Jerry hates him. So he's just a, like a really annoying character. But um, yeah, he's like one of those iconic Seinfeld characters that everyone knows. So <laughs> he's... So for a few years, he was the most famous of those ones, but obviously Felicity Huffman, um, for many reasons, some of which criminal, um, <laughs> eclipsed him in the in the years since. Um, but yeah, I think all I think all of them are like so good, and the guy who played Bear, whose name um, I don't know off the top of my head, uh, also very good. But obviously, he exits the the episode fairly quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like he's very recognisable. Like, I'm sure if I went and looked up the oh, he's very distinctive. page, yeah. like, he's been in stuff as well. So, yeah, cast get a big tick, both for being great actors, but also in terms of how the characters are written and play off each other. Yeah, absolutely. Jeff Koba is the, the name of the guy who played him. And, uh, yeah, he's one of those guys who's in loads of things like he was in the walking dead for a bit he was in <gasps> sons of anarchy it, yeah because i've watched the walking dead relatively recently yeah yeah he's just like a, a big imposing guy uh and that's kind of perfect he's got the the perfect rough hewn quality to him yeah. for you know a pilot who flies people into desolate parts of alaska yeah uh, i did believe that i did believe that um speaking of things i did and didn't believe um I feel like this episode, probably just because I was so entertained, um, but also because I think it's that there's like enough kind of plausible, kind of sciencey explanation, or at least what is presented in the episode. Like I was never mm. like wait a minute. Um, I was like, this all makes sense. I can get on board with this. Um, the mm. only thing that I was a bit like, wait, what? Um, I was a bit like, why would you have a dog in a in a polar research base? Um, so mm. one of the friends I had round um, for my my uh, late Burns night supper, um, he does a lot of field work down in Antarctica and does a lot of stuff up in the Arctic as well. And I was like, mm. are you allowed dogs? And he was he said in Antarctica, no, but up in the Arctic, it's encouraged apparently. Um, to to be able to tell you when there are polar bears and things about <laughs> um so i was like okay fair enough um it's their polar bear alert dog um who honestly for years and years like of the trivia that i've carried around about the show which is next to none because like when i was watching <laughs> this i even though i like read the magazine and everything like that the x-files magazine um i wasn't really one for like 
trivia and things but the one bit of trivia that I carried around for years I thought was that um the dog was David Duchovny's dog Blue turns out it was the mm. dad of David Duchovny's dog um so I've corrected that after carrying that tidbit of information around for like two decades or whatever mm, so still uh, still a nepotism higher but uh, a nepo father instead of a nepo baby yes exactly in and the best kind of nepo situation because it's a dog you can't you know it's yeah. fine nothing dogs do is bad uh speaking of the dog i thought that the there's some good effects in this episode obviously it's not like particularly effects heavy because yeah. it's mostly like people in a room like staring at each other intently <laughs> in the best possible way but you know there's a couple of effects in here i thought that the effect of the worm moving beneath the skin of the dog which you also then see under the skin yeah. of um of bear and then also de silva at the end of the episode uh is very well done um it's like a clearly a practical effect where you know they're looking at some fake skin and moving something yeah. underneath but uh it looks really really effective i also thought that the cgi worms that we see in the jars um are look like pretty good obviously it's very rudimentary cgi yeah. but that kind of adds to the otherworldliness of it yeah. in, a, in an interesting way yeah like it was a bit of a shame that the CGI worms looked quite different from like the real worms because mm, I think they had yeah. like some sort of mealworm or or something like that. Um, but they look quite like they they're, they're different colors, and it was like ah. Oh. However, that being said, the CGI ones, like you say, they do have that kind of they're they're really distinct, and so mm, you know yeah. they stick in your memory and everything else like that. Um, I thought it was quite funny when I was reading um, about what the writers, so this one was a a, a Morgan Wong duo um, mm-hmm. for writing and they were talking about where they got the idea from and things like that. And apparently there had been a story in some science publication about how scientists had found some like worms frozen in ice cores um from 250,000 years ago. So that that was like very real. Not not in a crater from a meteorite and and suspected to be otherworldly, <laughs> but um otherwise similar. And so they were saying that had inspired them, but then they were just like and you know, because worms are just horrible. And I'm like worms are <laughs> just horrible. Um it comes up again in the X-Files. Um but worms are gross. Yeah, so all those effects of like you're not you're not really looking at the detail of like what the worm is and what it's doing as it's being like held mm. up in forceps or pulled out of like someone's neck. You're just like, oh, that is so gross. Like, like they did that yeah. really well, and I love that they they had like s- somewhat lingering shots on the people observing what was going on whilst you know so mm. Mulder stood there just the sheer look of disgust and even Scully just like as a medical doctor or whatever just looking so grossed out and I'm like yeah I buy it like that is just so disgusting <laughs> worms are the worst yeah I think as well the like the bits where you know they they try to extract the worm from bear which kills him yeah. uh is like genuinely like quite upsetting because yeah. they're cutting into his back yeah. and you obviously don't see a lot of detail but there is like there's clearly blood yeah. and then when they pull it out the worm gets really stretchy and it just looks like deeply unpleasant and then when they figure out at the end of the episode that two parasites in the same body will kill each mm-hmm. other. You know, they test this out by putting a worm in the ear of the dog. Mm. And then at the end of the episode, they're trying to put an ear, uh, the the last surviving parasite in Mulder's ear because they think he's infected. Mm-hmm. And there's just something so gross about the idea of like being held down and someone trying to force a worm into your ear that like is viscerally very it is yeah it it makes your skin crawl it makes your insides crawl it's just Mm. the thought of that sort of thing is so gross um and in a way 
the you know i i guess maybe once they'd hit upon this idea of it being worms this the kind of horror element of it almost writes itself because no matter how mm. this thing gets into your body like it it's not a nice com- thing to yeah. contemplate is it so it's like absolutely the thing of nightmares um but even so i think especially that bit the kind of tension of like you know oh my god they're gonna put this thing into Mulder, and you you don't know for sure that it's him although by this point you think it's probably not him because Mulder and scully have like um they've checked each other out and everything so the stakes are just like crazy high and the fact that Scully mm. then gets separated and she can't help him and he's being held down, like it's it really like it it I don't know, like it's it kind of it's very it's very, it's a lot. It was a lot. I, I don't even know how to put it into words. It was a lot. That scene yeah. was a lot. <laughs> I I did think when so yeah, so like Mulder is separated from everyone, he's kind of put in a a, a, a basically a big closet mm-hmm. and locked away and then Scully goes in to talk to him because she wants to calmly kind of tell him to come in and get checked so that they can be sure that he's not infected. And then, you know, she checks the back of his neck and he, uh, he checks the back of her neck. And as I was watching that, I was thinking, this feels like catnip for the fanfic, right? Yes. It is like, a ve- it's a very, very intimate scene of them being alone and just kind of like staring at each other's bodies. And I kind of thought, yeah, like even, I'm not saying the show is like, cultivating that at this point i feel like it becomes a bigger thing later on Mm. but it's one of those scenes where you think there's kind of not a way to shoot this that wouldn't feel like deeply intimate well yeah Um, and i know like obviously we've spoken a bit about this in the past and like my watching of it even this time very much knowing that there's you know the the shippers out there who are looking for this sort of thing like I, i was just like actually they're checking each other's necks no big deal i didn't think it was written as kind of intimate yeah they're on their own but like it wasn't it didn't seem as intimate as the scene in the pilot where Mulder's checking scully's lower back um yeah yeah yeah. but apparently oh i can't remember i should really look these things up before but like there was there was some list when i was looking up stuff about this episode there was some list um, that it's shown up on in terms of like the t- within the top 20 most romantic or intimate or something as put together by shippy people and I was like oh really is this the top 20 it's not a very compelling list then from my point of mm-hmm. view but I'm I'm not in the the school of thought that Mulder and Scully want to bone each other um, very much. Mm. Not at this point, anyway. Like I say, I'll keep my mind open in terms of what's happening, but that scene was actually... But there was a really good bit of this scene, I thought, where Scully's turning to leave, and for a split second, like, Mulder goes to stop her, and but, but for a mm. split second, you don't know why. Like, he's yeah. just grabbed her, like, and it's quite, quite forceful, and then mm-hmm. obviously, and you know, like a half a second later, it's because he's then checking her neck, which is part of this weird dynamic between them two because you know they're going up against each other. Do they trust each other? You know, yeah. Um, you know, gun trivia. It's the first episode, maybe the last. I don't know. We'll find out. Um, where they point their guns at each other, but like, Mulder. Scully, get that gun off me! Mulder, you have to understand! Put it down! You put it down first! Scully! For God's sakes, it's me! Mulder, you may not be who you are. Given that what that symbolizes in terms of do they actually trust each other, has their partnership mm. developed? How has this partnership developed to this point? It's Mulder who lowers his gun first. So I guess he's like, okay, I trust you. Um, mm. But still not so much that he doesn't want to check her also. Or maybe he just wanted a cup of fuel of her neck. Maybe the shippers have got it all right. <laughs> I think as well what probably like appeals to the shippers about that scene and which i can i could i could see why like it would be considered like a romantic thing is it starts with him saying then why didn't you let us inspect you i would have but you pulled a gun on me now i don't trust him 
That is, it's a very vulnerable thing to say to someone that you want to, you want to believe in mm-hmm. them. Um, and, you know, then he turns around and shows his neck so that she can see that he's not infected. And so that's obviously like, yeah, that's him like a vulnerable, being vulnerable yeah. as well, because he's yeah. looking away. She could like cave his head in or whatever <laughs> if she's infected at that moment. Um, and I think that that there is a, the episode both really pushes their, like their burgeoning partnership. Yeah. To the extremes because, you know, there's a point where they do point each other's mm-hmm, guns mm-hmm. at each other. But it also, like, reaffirms it because they do reach that. You do end the episode thinking, like, they have reached a level of trust with each other that maybe hadn't been there before. Yeah. Because they really did have to, in that moment, put each other's lives in its hands. They had to believe that neither of them was infected yeah. um, in order to check. So, yeah, so I, I do think that, like, that as well factors into it in terms of, like... The building of their relationship, even just as as colleagues, yeah. like they have to trust each other so fully for that moment to work and for the episode to work. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you in that sense. Though I don't know, are you going to be the shipper and I'm going to be the no Romo in this? Is that is that what's happening? Well, I I I'm I'm just saying like I because that's such a big part of like it already becomes such a big part of the show's yeah. appeal as it goes on. Yeah. And particularly, you know, you're talking about these days, like in in the early 90s, it's the early days of the internet, people shipping the characters becomes such a huge deal. Mm-hmm. And like, they are in some ways the original, like, ship like that, like that, that a lot of that culture kind of like grows out of the X-Files. Yeah. Like, I, I find it hard not to think about that stuff when watching it and thinking, yeah. you know, what moments from the show, like, really drove that into Overdrive. And, like, the moment in the pilot is, like, a big one yeah. um, for that. And I, I do feel like the scene here kind of, like, plays into it. And, you know, even, like, in The Jersey Devil when she decides to, like, go and help him rather than stay on a date. You know, like, there are, lot, there are lots of things where you could see someone who's really invested in the idea that they're going to get together at some point kind of like seeing these as breadcrumbs even if in actuality i think the writers were probably more leaning towards the sense of like yeah these people work together so obviously there's going to be like lots of scenes them together and sometimes they're going to have to have scenes like this yeah. where they're alone together and they have to kind of have a mutual level of trust with each other yeah i think what's interesting for me and i what i'm finding hard to disentangle is trying to think is this because I've I've just watched this show so many times and, and I'm so familiar <laughs> with them as characters, but but watching it and focusing real hard as I have been <laughs> just for these first what what is this episode eight? Mm-hmm. I'm like actually they're just such a formed unit, like and yes, this yeah. episode really kind of shows and and tests the the kind of trust and the strength of their partnership but if anything by the time I was sort of finished watching this episode through I was like they're just like you wouldn't even question it of course they're a partnership um but yeah Mm. I don't know if that's just because I've watched it you know obviously I'm so familiar with them as, as characters um but it definitely feels like that's just a given now in the series and we're only eight, mm. eight episodes in yeah I, I think the overall task i think of the first season in a lot of ways is to kind of build that relationship and to make you believe in them as a partnership yeah. and the show like really establishes that fairly quickly like by episode like four or five you're, you're pretty sure that they um rely on each other but i think also those episodes for the most part they don't like really test the partnership that mm. much like in the way that this does no. where like they they are actually not just at odds like ideologically because one of them is a believer and one of them's a skeptic but in the sense of like there's a real chance that if one of them got infected that the other would have to kill them yeah or you know so uh i do think that this is kind of an interesting thing to do this early in the series where you do put them in a life or death situation where their partnership is really pushed to the edge. Yeah. But I think it's smart to do it this early on because you do get a sense of like, oh, like this is how far they've come in a very short amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess we've seen it being challenged 
in squeeze initially in terms of scully taking sides um mm. career wise i guess and then and then like you said in the jersey devil when she chooses to spend time with him rather than go on boring dates <laughs> um, yeah. but but this is like as you say super high stakes because because they're in they're in the X file, you know. I think it's been pointed mm. out, so I don't want to like cover super well tread um, assessment and things like that. But the, this is quite different from other X files in as much as they are in it and they're affected by it directly, as opposed to yeah. simply investigating or observing, which obviously adds to the the. Um, the tension and the drama and everything and, and why I think this episode works especially well. Um, I think as well, one of the interesting things about it is that obviously it is an X-File because something strange is happening, but there's not necessarily like an actual supernatural or paranormal element to it. Like there's the sense that maybe the worms are extraterrestrial, yeah. but that's not confirmed. No. It's more just they're real old worms and there's been in a meteor a crate, crater so yeah this area of the ice sheet is formed over a meteor crater the worm lives in ammonia it survived sub-zero temperatures theorists in alternative life designs believe in ammonia supported life systems on planets with freezing temperatures no. the meteor that crashed here a quarter of a million years ago may have carried that type of life to earth we've we've shown that you know all sorts of living well worms can be buried in ice for 250,000 years. Apparently, those worms actually were um, reanimated. They came back to life after they were thawed mm. out. You know, the actual real worms, I mean, that this story was based yeah. on, which just is kind of horrific. But yeah, like we know <laughs> we know lots of, um, especially microorganisms can survive in really desolate, cold and hot and extreme environments and things like that. The only thing that makes this particularly weird, potentially, is that it's in a meteor crater. Yeah, so it really is just kind of... it. It's more so than any of the others up to this point, a drama about people interacting with each other, about the fact that you are sticking these people alone in a single location and their own inherent distrust of each other boils to the surface as a result. It's one of you. He's lying. You could have done it not even long. No, he said he didn't do it. I don't have any of the symptoms. You checked him yourself, Hodge. No, six hours ago. It was ago. one of you. Stop it! Stop it! Shut up! I really like how one of the first things you see is they arrive at the airport in, I think, Nome, because I think they set out yeah. from Nome, Alaska. And the first thing that happens is when DeSilver and Hodge show up is they ask to see ID. Yeah. And they're really insistent also on seeing Bear's ID. And there's just a general sense of distrust immediately mm -hmm. because obviously, like, these are scientists. They don't know these people from the FBI. You know, they don't know what's up. Um, later on, that kind of plays into it where um, Hodge and De Silva are talking to each other. And I think Hodge raises the question of like or maybe to silver raises the question of like did they know about this mm, before mm -hmm. we came up and then they immediately le leap to the assumption that they all oh, they must they must have known that this was going on and uh that kind of like builds into the distrust as yeah, well yeah and even though there is a kind of like potentially supernatural or paranormal element to it with the worms really the drama does emerge from like something that's very like real and human like you you could theoretically like you could make the whole episode again and then it just turns out that no one was infected and i think it would still work pretty well um yeah. because i feel like other than you know felicity huffman like going wild and smashing beakers all over the place at the end when person uh, realize she's the infected one there's like not a lot really to the episode to kind of suggest that something's gone wrong, that any of them could be infected or that, you know, um, that the way they're acting is not just because of the extremity of the situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's what makes it really compelling drama. Yeah. I did like, um, so at the very beginning, um, when Mulder's sort of introducing the case to Scully and it's kind of like, 
what's so weird about this um and aside from the fun line where he's like we're either brilliant or <laughs> expendable so we've got the case mm. um they 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 sort of bring up this explanation of like these are highly trained scientists there's no reason for them to like go a wall and kill each other or whatever um yeah. but it did remind me of the somewhat recent story uh about how um a couple of uh well, a Russian scientist attacked and stabbed um, a fellow colleague on a base in Antarctica. Um, and apparently the reason was because he kept on spoiling the ends of the books that he was reading. <laughs> <laughs> Which apparently there's no actual evidence to support that, but it's like widely reported that that's what happened. Um mm -hmm. But but yeah, like it's completely believable that like you're in this very stressful situation and you think there's this infectious thing going about um, like that alone. Yeah. Even if there weren't like gross, al potentially alien worms going about would be a lot. I think I would be stressed out. I might um, brandish jars and whatnot at people if I was yeah. in that situation. <laughs> We only like touched on it briefly earlier, but I, I I just wanted to call out. I think the the cold open to this episode is really well yeah. good. It's is really well done. It's um, well good, Ed. Basic, you said it right the first it time. Is well it's good. well good. Um, where it shows one of the survivors from the crew at the Arctic station making the distress call, where he keeps saying, "We are not who we are. Mm -hmm. It goes no further than this." Not. We are. We're not who we are. And then one of the other survivors shows up and attacks him, and then it ends with them both pointing guns on each other before deciding to shoot to shoot themselves in the head at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, it's a really good action sequence. It's like a really good, you know, we talked about in previous episodes about how the writers would talk about big boo moments, mm -hmm. the moments that are meant to make you go, oh, what's going to happen next? And I think it's like uh, ruthlessly effective at that because you're being dropped into a situation you don't understand. People are acting in a way that's like extremely unusual. Mm -hmm. And then it ends on this big moment where they both like shoot themselves and they're in the middle of the Arctic. Yeah. And I think it's one of the best cold opens of the show so far because I think it, it kind of really does set the tone yeah. really well. Yeah, and I think it even held up to second watch scrutiny where, you mm. know, I was really paying attention to the performance and everything and I thought, oh, that's a really good fight scene. Like, I don't know why there's random panes of glass, but I'm glad it was there so they could crash <laughs> through it. But but even like the like the performance, the actors and how they're saying the looks, like even just the looks, I was like, oh, I buy it. Um, so yeah, it really sucks you in straight away. And then, I mean, and then the episodes ended and you're like, whoa, that ended quickly, as opposed to other episodes that feel like they drag out for a million years. This one mm. um, was just pretty much all killer. Yeah, absolutely. I really liked... Um, sort of just going back a little bit to, to Mulder and Scully's interaction, but I just really loved the scene where um, I think they've checked each other out and so they're like, oh, we should get some sleep. And so Scully's ready to go into her 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 room and Mulder's going into his room. Um, and I think she says something like... Good night, Mulder. Good night, Scully. At least everyone's okay. Don't forget... The spots on the dog went away. And I was like, ah, you asshole. <laughs> she's <laughs> she's ready to have a nice sleep and now you've just made her like really on edge. Mm. Yeah, I think um, that part of the episode, it's got a really nice montage there where like she goes into her room and then she blocks the door off and then she kind of curls up yeah. into the... The other thing that is, is, is readily apparent is that people, that no one is sleeping well. Yeah. Um, in this situation, which also adds to the irritableness and also makes sense because they're in a very bad situation. Yeah. Um, but there's a very nice montage where it shows how everyone in the the team who are up there are 
kind of like dealing with the situation like um murphy is like putting his headphones in to kind of listen to another game um then like everyone else is uh, um hodge is kind of like writing a mm-hmm. list of like pros and cons of like who it could possibly be um i think De Silva has kind of like just like conked out crying she, um, she's crying oh uh, uh, yeah that's right uh and then like Mulder's just kind of like upstairs basically kind of like staring at the ceiling because he's just trying With to his think gun the situation for close by <laughs> yeah uh and i thought that sequence is like it's, it's a great really wordless sequence yeah. that really emphasizes how even though there's no immediate danger as far as anyone's concerned because everyone's in their rooms everyone's every, yeah it was that line from the thing it's like uh, we're all very no one trusts each other and we're all very tired mm-hmm. um it really kind of like emphasizes that in a in a soundless way that uh, I thought was a really effective use of montage. And I think the thing that wasn't super clear the first time I watched, but but was the second time, um, was actually how they they do give you little snippets so that you understand a little bit of how much time is passing from scene to scene. Mm. Um, because I yeah. feel like otherwise you'd be like you've been there two minutes and you get, and you're losing your mind already. Um, but they do give you like pointers to the fact that hours have passed or or whatever so I think so that you can be more like oh my gosh this is like becoming higher and higher pressured as well as what you see in that montage for example like you see that they're they're under it Um, but yeah you have multiple bits of evidence so that you can can buy the 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 tension and everything the claustrophobia Mm. yeah absolutely um i guess one last point that i wanted to make which was pointed out um by darren mooney who's a blogger who wrote reviews of like every episode of the x-files a few years ago um and is a very good smart writer on film and television um he talked about how the episode because it obviously draws from the thing and the thing had a very clear um aids metaphor in it how that kind of plays into this as well you know you kind of have people get infected through bodily fluids they get you know the the black pustules that people show up is like as a visual analog to the sort of like um bruising and and things that you know people who developed aid Mm. would have um and just the general sense of paranoia that i think was definitely a case amongst like the gay community at the time where people were like you don't know if the person you're sleeping with has AIDS mm. who could infect you and you would have to trust someone. Uh, and I think that that is obviously like this episode, you know, it's an episode of network television in the 90s. Like it's not like making that overt. Yeah. But I think people at the time where AIDS was still very much in the news, like Freddie Mercury had died mm. like a few years ago. Um, Magic Johnson, I think probably had just been diagnosed. So it was like a very hot button topic. Um Philadelphia came out that year as well. Mm. Like, uh, I feel like people at the time would not have, who have been, who were like keyed into the culture, would have not been able to, uh, would have, would have picked up on the um, association, I think. Yeah. Which is like a good case of, you know, sci fi drawing on real life uh, to comment it on inter- in interesting ways. And see, that's interesting because that, that actually hadn't occurred to me at all. And, but I, I think, I mean, it's good when um, a TV show can add commentary to things, but sometimes when it's too overt, it can be quite blunt yeah. and quite clumsy. Whereas I think actually that's quite clever and quite subtle and mm. quite good. Yeah. I really liked that there's some quips in here like it's not a super Mm. funny episode but there's still some funny quips like Mulder joking about like not judging when they're checking each other out because it's cold Um, yeah I had that down as like the the, like you say there there are funny lines in the episode but that feels like the 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 big joke of the episode that he gets to put in I mean, I thought the big joke was when um, Hodge is saying, okay, we'll need to take blood and stool samples. Parasitic diagnostic procedure requires that each of us provide a blood and a stool sample. A stool sample? Wow. This kind of travel always makes that kind of tough. For me. Okay. Anybody got the morning sports section handy? So there's quite a few little quips throughout, which 
again for for quite a heavy otherwise serious episode um it's all it's always nice to just have those little moments of of fun um yeah and yeah i like the the science in this in terms of its plausibility and stuff like i mean you know it's sci-fi it doesn't need to be super plausible but um i have the real science behind the x-files book which is by um a dr anne simon who is a virologist immunologist something like that and she was a science advisor for some episodes of the x-files um including this one so there's a little bit written about this um in the book which you know if you're if for those out there who are super interested in the science i'd i'd go look it out but like the it reminded me of various stories about like weird parasites and things like that um you know like their ability to actually train change the way their hosts behave and things and Mm. this specific one isn't written in the book but but like this thing of like oh we're not who we are and it being a, just a little bit wild to think that like a little parasite can change how you how you behave but yeah the this example is like parasites they affect caterpillars and it makes the caterpillars go out in the open and end up getting eaten by like birds and cats and things but then it mm. but it can lead to like basically reckless behavior and like I should look up to see if this has been proven or disproven at this point but I remember reading a few years ago about how apparently cyclists who have been involved in traffic accidents and been injured and stuff like that, apparently a high proportion of them, and this is like correlation, not causation, but apparently a high proportion of them have this parasite. So like... Oh, interesting. It e- like it even potentially has the effect of making humans, of people becoming reckless. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think if it's the same one, I think I've heard about this before, that, that that's one of the reasons why they discouraged like pregnant women from touching cats oh. because of the fear that the parasite could like be transferred into the baby. Right. And then make the baby a bit reckless and chew out their mum's womb before they're ready. Like, no. <laughs> yeah. No, but no, yeah, like, yeah, they could like affect the brain chemistry. Yeah. Um, and, and then another kind of like real world example that is, has become more famous because of fiction um, there's like that fungus that you know can kind of like take over the brains of insects mm. and um which is the main inspiration for like the the last of us um oh. game and tv series where the idea is like it's a fungus mm. that you know kind of takes over the social the, the central nervous mm-hmm. system and is what turns people into zombies so yeah so there are definitely like um real world examples of things that can really mess with people's behavior yeah but, so this episode isn't like it's not taking like too many wild leaps no. um for a sci-fi show what would you rate this episode i think it's probably gonna be quite high <laughs> i'm gonna give it what did i give squeeze like an 11 uh we both gave squeeze a 10 i'm gonna give this a 9.5 and it only mm. loses a 0.5 because it wasn't snowing in Alaska. No. <laughs> no, I think I would have liked to have seen more slight hints that De Silva was the one who was affected. Like, even things that you would not even notice, like, you know, a casual first viewing, but maybe you could go back and pick up on. Because other than that, mm. it's kind of like, sudden, suddenly she's just going feral and wild. And I'm like, oh, it's her then. But that is like literally, and but you don't notice really when you're watching it the first time. Normally, I should say. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna give it a nine time nine point five anyway. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna give it a ten. I think I think it is on a par with Squeeze as like one of the best episodes of the first season, yeah. and really one of the like pinnacles of what the X Files could do. I think you know it's ev- everything it tries to do, it does swimmingly. And, you know, it really is a testament to, like, what the show could do when, you know, they have all these episodes to fill mm-hmm. and, like, a fairly loose premise so they can kind of, like, try out weird and interesting things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a case of that working out brilliantly, I think. 
So, as as you had said last week, it's a certified banger, and it's certified, certified, certified also by us. Official banger mm, from the yeah. file room. <laughs> yeah, let's get a stamp made. Um, yeah. Uh, so next week we'll be talking about another one-word title, space. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a decent one. Mm. I don't have like a great memory of it being like a standout, but no. I guess we'll have to see. <laughs> uh, but thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the File Room. If you've enjoyed the episode, then please subscribe to us, rate us, reviewers, recommend us to your friends, all the things that help us grow our audience. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at File Room Pod, and you can also email us at thefileroompod at gmail.com. Uh, if you have any thoughts on this episode, um, yeah, we'd love to hear. Uh, our music is by Lionel Cassio, and we're back next time. Uh, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.